This is an RNZ podcast. Here at Media Watch, we are not big fans of so-called anniversary journalism, stories that start it's 10 years since X happened or 20 years since the startling death of Y, and then looking back at that and what's happened since. Often that involves rehashing old stuff that many people have heard before anyway and possibly didn't care too much about in the first place. But one anniversary we thought was worth marking is 100 years of organised broadcast radio and the first news on the air. Back in 1920, a station owned by the Detroit Times newspaper got a licence and then started broadcasting concerts over 10 days as a bit of an experiment. And when that seemed to work, the station announced the local, state and congressional primary election returns one night to its local listeners. And then they went on to make a story out of the fact that they'd just broken new ground by doing that. And why not? And radio has never looked back since then. Just two years later, the BBC was up and running in the UK with news that could be heard in and around London, and soon the whole country. Governments, companies and listeners at home all started investing in the gear for transmitting and receiving broadcasts all over the world. Now obviously a lot has happened since then. TV, satellites, the internet and streaming. But globally, radio has proved the stayer. Indeed, some now call it the cockroach of the world's mass media. In 2018, global business consultancy Deloitte reckoned that 85% of the adult population in the developed world listened to the radio at least once a week, and nearly 3 billion people worldwide listened for an average of 90 minutes a day to the radio. And Deloitte reckoned, unlike some other forms of traditional media, radio will continue to perform relatively well with people under 35, even in the US. Driving around in a car and listening to music, news and a loudmouth DJ is still very much part of the US cultural fabric in 2019. In a world where digital changes everything, radio may be the exception. And the same may hold true here. Radio remains the most profitable part of the New Zealand media scene, even though it's still transmitted and received by pre-digital analogue devices and technology. So what's the secret to radio's longevity and what happens next? Well, Peter Hoare and Matt Mulgard both research and teach radio broadcasting at the Auckland University of Technology. Matt has documented the impact of digital technology on radio in New Zealand and specifically how RNZ has gone digital while at the same time staying on the air. And Peter is the author of The World's Din, a history of early radio and music listening in New Zealand and he's also a regular contributor to programmes on RNZ Concert. Because it's so simple, because it's so basic, it's fast, it's robust, it's agile. It does all it should do very quickly with not too much equipment. You know, it's real simple. Um, It doesn't need the huge investment that, say, television does. It's much faster than television in times of turnaround. Its fundamental strength to me is the way that it is such direct human communication. We speak, we listen, which is, you know, the oldest human communication. We've been telling stories for the last, what, 40,000, 200,000 years. That's what we evolved to do in a way. And you can hear it anywhere, anytime on pretty much any piece of technology available these days. I think you'll find most houses have kind of like three or four um, radios stashed away in various places. So so to me, it's simplicity is, is actually its beauty in a way. I think that's what makes it so strong. I mean, Matt, uh, given that there are uh, millions upon millions upon millions of active, robust, working analogue receivers uh, that will carry on working forever so long as the signal's broadcast, is that part of what uh, makes this, the, you know, the cockroach medium, as some like to call it? Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of business and a lot of politics wound up in radio staying as it is. And um, New Zealand, for example, our commercial industry here, 
um, is just not going to give up FM radio anytime soon. It's so profitable and there are so many receivers and the idea of trying to switch all of that over to some sort of digital network for most people, it's way out of the bounds of reality. There's our cars have got the radios in them already, our, our houses, our workplaces, our cell phones, all full of FM radio and AM radio receiving gear. So why would you um, change that? So to me, it's, it's, it's um, not so much a legacy media, but a, a media that just keep, keeps on getting bigger because there's more and more receivers built every single day. Mm. And, um, I mean, radio was revolutionised by this 100 years ago, these first news broadcasts, um, Peter, but uh, that means people around the world have been able to get uh, their news a whole lot quicker over the past 100 years thanks to radio and that, that simplicity and ease of transmission. Is it a stretch to actually say, as some do, that radio actually changed the world? Oh, I think absolutely. Radio in one, is one of the major things that makes the world we live in because, yeah, it really to me it's really altered the way we see ourselves as individuals in the world, the way we interrelate with each other and the way we kind of gather information and become part of the modern world, which is all about information flows, you know, no matter what platform you're using. And are there some, uh, Peter, some moments in history which you could point to and say, well, those are ones where, you know, the fact that radio was available and operational has changed changed our perception of history? Well, <laughs> yeah, how long we got? You know, this could go on for a while. But, I mean, OK, an obvious one, for instance, you know, the sinking of the Titanic, a huge cultural landmark in 1912. You know, it still resonates, films, all that. And radio was really important there in terms of getting rescue ships and all that sort of stuff. And it kind of alerted a lot of people to the possibilities of wireless transmission. I think the foundation of the BBC in the 1920-1922, this was happening in New Zealand, people are setting up radio companies, we set up these institutions, which are communication institutions, which also give us this new concept of public versus commercial media and what is media for, information, entertainment, um, you know, the Rethian pillars type thing. Um, FM radio, that got going in 1934, and FM radio has completely revolutionised the way we hear music. You know, the music, uh, the sound of modern music has fed back in itself and away from FM radio. Um, the War of the Worlds uh, transmission in 1938, which showed the power of media to, to affect large communities, although people debate how much that happened. The transistor was invented in 1947. Now, this made radios really small, and um, you could take them anywhere. So yeah, now you've got this companion with you on the beach, you know, just in your pocket, going everywhere. And when you've got it in cars as well, you've got the sort of changes in society and culture that happened post-World War II. Youth as consumers, you know, the rock and roll generation. Think of all the rock and roll songs talking about listening to radio in the car. And so radio was, was, was the platform that people interacted with and got this culture from. Um, I mean, as I say, there's so many important dates, but they kind of all add up to this, this huge edifice of broadcast sound, which is uniting us and giving us all these different cultures. So, yeah, I think it fundamentally changed the world. Well, Matt, we talked about the uh, robustness in, uh, of the, the analogue technology preserving uh, radio into this digital era, in a sense. Are those who call it the cockroach of the mass media uh, right, or is that a bit simplistic? Oh, it's, they're right, and it's a bit simplistic. <laughs> I think um, radio has done really well moving to the internet. Um, it's it's built for, um, uh, you know, originally it was about not having pictures, and now it's very much about combining pictures and text and moving pictures too. 
um, and all sorts of different things that um, you can refer to from your audio broadcast back to your to your website. So that's a whole new part of radio, which is, to me, it's really exciting because it expands the amount of people that can listen to it and it expands the times that you can listen to it. It's not so much a cockroach because it has actually developed a whole new persona with the web coming along. So, you know, the AM and the FM um, and in some countries, the digital transmission stuff is still very important because you cannot watch a screen where you're driving. But the the introduction of the internet has just really given radio so much more space, and that's exciting. But will the radio transmission, Matt, uh, still carry on in this in this analog, pre-digital form, um, or will it will it eventually go fully digital as it has with television? Yeah. So in New Zealand, we looked at that. We've looked at it several times. I know there's been experiments. RNZ's done some stuff too. The cost of doing it, I think, is really prohibitive. We've got a very uh, long, skinny country with lots of hills in the middle, and digital transmission just doesn't work as well in that that sort of geography. Cities with tall buildings and um, cities that are spread out like Auckland, uh, digital transmission just won't work as well as FM and AM. It won't penetrate through buildings as well, that sort of stuff. Um, Also, you know, just the fact that people don't have digital radios in their houses. They just don't. I think in Norway, they're thinking about turning FM back on because they switched everything over to uh, digital, and they found that you know half the audience disappeared overnight. Because oh, that, that was a sort of poster listening. child for the early yeah. uh, complete transition to, to digital. Or... Yeah, so now the European Broadcasting Union are, um, are up in arms a bit, basically, because uh, you know the people who miss out on radio now are the people who are older and don't have the technological skills or don't have the radios, um, and also just don't want to get rid of their radio in the garage and their radio in the car and their radio in the kitchen. Um, that part of radio is part of our everyday lives is still really important to how we think about it. So that old uh, analogue transmission and the new digital media, we've, we've talked about that, or the digital way of getting those sounds out. Um, some people say this convergence of technology means that it doesn't really matter how it's done. Um, uh, it's, it's all just ways of getting sound out to people on a device of one sort or another. But there's a sort of philosophical difference, isn't there? Like the old analogue broadcasting is over the airwaves, the government regulates those, you know, on our behalf, the public behalf, they manage all that spectrum, um, and it's free to use it at the point of use. But um, online transmission, that requires people to have an ISP account with a commercial company. Um, you know, the data between us and them is going backwards and forwards. Uh, do you th- see these differences as significant? Yeah, you're right. It's, it comes down to philosophy of, of what broadcasting is about when you think about a government providing a service. Um, a government provides a road, it provides broadcasting, it provides civil defence, all those sort of things. Um, the commercial world will sell you ISP accounts and that sort of stuff too, and they'll be taking on the content which they think is important for their business, that sort of thing. Um, with broadcasting and um, our... our uh, legislation policies around it, we're very deliberately trying to get everybody in New Zealand to have a media service, um, both with television and radio in New Zealand. We're quite lucky. And um, our, uh, I guess our, our um, background in media policy is very much influenced by the British and the BBC and those things which were early parts of how we thought about broadcasting. To take that all away and turn it all into... Um, digital streams that come to your cell phone, for example, I think is just, uh, it's not in the near future. And the FM and AM, I keep you know going back to this, it really does serve that purpose very well. All those things are still important, and I can't see any of the major networks, RNZ included, turning off AM or FM in the near future. It just works so well. I mean, year on year, though, the total radio audience uh, is declining as people have options to listen online or not to radio at all, to podcasts that could be made overseas or you know just anywhere in the world. Do you think uh, as, as radio goes into the future, Matt, will it be possible to find new listeners 
on the air in New Zealand, or will all the growth have to be online? There'll be new listeners and watchers. It doesn't matter where they come from. The platform doesn't really matter. Um, you can't build a new uh, media service, and I mean, I guess RNZ found it out with the wireless, without having, uh, I hate to say it, a legacy media to hang it off. Mm. Um, there has to be a big mass media that you can do the big mass media stuff with and then direct them back to your web platforms, your podcasts, your various ways of getting other stuff out too. Um, I think that the, the, less, the lesson of the wireless for me was, well, Nobody knew it was there, and there was no schedule. There was no reason for you to be listening to it at 7 o'clock in the morning and going back and re-listening to that sort of thing too. That broadcast aspect of radio is still really important. People set their watches you know, to when the breakfast show does this or I'm going to listen to this show on the way home, that sort of stuff too. So for any new services, I think you need to, you need to attach them to a big mass media and you need to drive that mass media to drive the rest of the platforms that you're doing too. Um, and broadcast potential means a lot of people could be listening and the opportunity to hit that frequency or hit that particular media platform is much wider than just putting a few things up on the internet and calling it something. Well, with that in mind, uh, the creation of new services and younger listeners coming on stream, RNZ is currently planning a big shake-up of its music offering in a bid to attract younger listeners that that haven't been uh, well-served or attracted by RNZ services so much in the past. They're currently recruiting a professional programmer to create and lead this new brand to bring in these younger uh, audiences they hope based on music I mean RNZ won't give details yet this is still being worked out and discussed with staff they say Uh, but Peter is this a move you welcome? I can see the need, you know, you've got to expand your audience. You've got to get young people involved with this sort of thing. I think it's going to be a tricky thing to negotiate because when, you know, the whole, the very name, Youth Radio Network, just makes me shudder. You know, what is this, 1995? Why are we doing this? You know, um, I I think it could be done. Um, we're also operating in a, in a huge information vacuum right now, uh, which makes this discussion that much harder. Mm. Um, I personally want to see lots more media space, and it gives audiences commercial-free spaces. Um, I do notice with my year one students, every year I ask them, what stations do you listen to? They stream. They do that sort of stuff. And I'm just thinking, so we're going to set up a radio network Without knowing more, <laughs> I guess I have to say I'm not entirely sure how it's going to work in 2020 as opposed to, say, 20, 30 years ago when there wasn't so much going on in terms of access for the so-called young people. Well, uh, Matt, RNZ won't confirm whether this will be a dedicated you know, actual youth music station on the air, um, such as you know was proposed many years ago and frequencies were reserved for it, but it never happened. Uh, they've said it will be uh, on online as well as elements on the air so you know yet to be determined whether it is this self-standing service in a, in a station dedicated to them but but I mean sh- should it be I mean do you think that would actually work in the digital age I can see potential for uh, the radio industry as a whole to embrace a, um, a move like this because we do um, need to arrest the decline in listening at the younger ends but you can't do that by uh, making worthy radio or radio that's boring so what they need to do is get the right people involved, think about what people in those age groups they're targeting are actually doing and design the station around that too. I think you also need to be um, aware of the, the cult, uh, pop cultural uh, movements that are on at the moment, the sort of things that people do. I mean, look at Laneways Festival. It just every year sells out. Um, Triple J is obviously one of the models they could look at in Australia. Triple J does a lot of good business out of um, putting on huge events. You know, those sort of things bring you into the radio station's orbit, 
they send you to the website, there's the magazine, there's all those other ways that you can touch points that you can interact with the service. And that is run by Australia's public broadcaster as its effort to connect with youth, both as a dedicated radio service nationwide and and an online presence as well. With a huge online audience, and that's part of it too. I mean, they do have people, young guys and girls, listening to it in their cars on the way to work and all the rest of it, but they also have a huge online presence and that ability to replay shows or to connect up with people by transmitting uh, concerts live. And not the traditional radio station, which gives you a schedule and you listen to it, but think about how, how am I going to turn the service into... Um, a multi-platform delivery service, which gives all these lifestyle options as well too. I mean, that's the exciting thing for me. And for all radio, it's good. All commercial radio will also get a kick out of this because you're going to have young people interested in going through the dial again. And I think that's exciting for us all, really, in, in, in the industry, both commercial and uh, public. But isn't the commercial radio industry there? Surely their instinct will be that <clears throat> they don't want RNZ's publicly funded tank on their commercial lawn because they like to advertise to those youngsters. Yeah, but they're also facing the prospect of those audiences disappearing. So in reality, it's, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword for them, but they need to, I think, um, they need to have a look at what they can do to work with a service like that. One thing RNZ's done so well lately is actually reach out and start talking to the commercial um, media market, you know, the, the deals with stuff and that sort of thing. Um, is that there is no reason they can't be doing that with the commercial radio um, networks as well. I can see them hooking up over large um, events and gigs, and, and they also can't stop RNZ doing this sort of thing. You have legislation which lets you and actually forces you to think about um, younger people too. So um, I think the time is right. Of course it's risky, but I think with the right people and the right reasons to do it, it'll, it'll work. And finally, this week, RNZ reported that uh, Cabinet has again considered uh, proposals for a new public media entity to replace RNZ and TVNZ, so the state-owned nominally radio and television companies, but of course both of them now multimedia um, enterprises, uh, with one new public media entity. Uh, We still don't have the details of how uh, this will go, but it seems that the ministers have approved that idea but want to know more. What do you make of this, um, Matt? I just heard the sound of a can being kicked down the road, actually, for three years when I heard the announcement. Um, You know, on the outside, it looks like a really good idea where you combine all this um, resource and you get these people talking better. There's the old argument about the two different cultures of RNZ and TVNZ. There has been, in the past, uh, there are commercial network um, in in Radio New Zealand and a public network, which I used to work at, and we couldn't get into each other's offices because the cultures were so different. So bringing that together, I think, is a a major, major issue. And I I don't think it's unworkable. I think it will take some careful planning. Um, What is it meant to achieve has got to be the core principle. If they're doing it because it looks good on paper and because it's got some sort of political uh, motivation behind it, I don't think it's going to be as strong as, look, hey, this is the way the 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 media is going. Uh, We can see this massive intrusion from overseas, from foreign media um, platforms like Facebook and all the rest. Um, we, We can counter that with this thing. And that's got to be at the core of any decisions they make about it. I, I think that it's a big, difficult one. That's why they kicked it down the road. It's, it's a much bigger task than they originally thought. Uh, Peter, the fact that it's been considered a second time, ministers do now seem to be uh, zeroing on, on this one proposal for one new outfit. Does that seem like a step forward to you? Well, it's, it's a step forward in the sense that they're investigating it seriously and not just sort of some knee-jerk reaction. And I think we're all agreed, Okay, it's an idea that needs exploring, but I think it needs a lot of careful exploration. If it's just to salvage TVNZ, well, frankly, I don't care. What I'd like to see is 
better funding, better resources for public media who supply us with, you know, facts, if I like to say. In a world of nonsense and counterfacts and false information, I think it's really important that we have institutions which involve multiple platforms that are reliable and allow us to debate um, things that need debating and supply us with information. So I'm not sure what the problem is that the solution is for, if you see what I mean. Is, is there a huge problem out there that this is going to fit? I'm, I'm not sure, but I guess we will find out in due time. And I think we've got New Zealand on air too, and New Zealand on air is really important because they're a platform funder. They don't fund any particular media. They fund programming for platforms. So in a lot of ways, what they're directed to do is produce this content or help producers produce content, which is about us and and uh, being New Zealanders, that sort of stuff. So their their part in this mix is really important too. Well, how do they then work with this new super entity? What is, what's their role? Do they just fund commercial stuff, or do they become an overall funder of this big organisation? Do they support television? Um, do we uh, turn New Zealand on air into kind of a branch of this mega organisation? So those questions, I think, need to be really carefully considered because New Zealand on air works. And it's very unique and it's very special. And we need to look at that role too as part of our media economy. That was Dr Peter Hoare, Senior Lecturer in Radio at Auckland University of Technology and his colleague Dr Matt Mulgard, AUT's Head of Department for Radio and Audio, who's analysed RNZ and the Internet, Radio and Convergence through 10 years of transformation. And you can hear more of what they had to say about 100 years of broadcast radio and what the future holds for it in the online version of the story, Broadcast Radio 100 Not Out. And next week, we'll hear more on RNZ's plans for a new youth music brand to attract younger listeners and plans for changes to RNZ Concert and its mostly not-so-young listeners.